Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure at Podcast. Today, we are joined by Arthur Noble, principal at Knight Capital, a leading VC firm in Europe, and co-author of the soon-to-be-published book, Leaders of Growth. Today, we will be covering four key findings from the book with Arthur. Number one, the baseline definition of startup phases of evolution. This is really important for the rest of the conversation. Number two, the most common scaling challenges of B2B startups and how they differ by stage. Number three, some of the top ideas and techniques to address those challenges that Arthur discovered during his authoring of the book. And fourth, common themes or traits shared by the participants and the leaders of growth. Arthur, please take a moment to give a brief background of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics Major Up podcast. Thanks, Ray, for having me. As you know, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I'm really great and honored to be here today. So just to introduce myself quickly, I joined the startup world back in 2014 after I learned that corporates weren't really my thing. After some projects, I joined the venture capital world. I worked for a seed fund and a series B fund. And then afterwards, I thought, no, I know the, the startup side. I know the VC side. Let's start my own company. And the mission was uh, with my own company was to enable remote work to the masses, which was back in uh, 2017, 2018, like a big challenge, which unfortunately I learned the hard way that market timing is everything. But I took some great learnings out of that related to building a team, raising funds and basically building a startup. So from there, I always for all the founders I speak with today, big empathy for them because of the journey I, I went through myself. And then fast forward, I joined Knight Capital in 2020. As you mentioned already, we're VC focused from Series A to C funding, specializing in go-to-market. And one of the things what we wanted to do is create a book that would really help the broader community that basically struggle with finding content from the stage, I would say, after product market fit, but before you know the big successes like raising hundreds of millions of euros. So that in-between stage, we felt there are some challenges there, and that's why we decided to write the book. Well, before we jump into a lot of the findings and things that you found interesting from writing the book, I wanted to start with setting the foundation for our listening audience. And that is, you mentioned seed, series A, and I've seen a lot of evolution of what a seed stage or series A company is in the last year or two. So for our audience, can you define kind of what are the attributes of each stage of growth that we're going to be referring in today's podcast? Great. As you said, there are different opinions about how to look at it. I cannot say I have the final truth here. Shall we maybe share first sort of three lenses, the three perspectives on how to look to seed, series A, et cetera? That's great. Perfect. So the three lenses, I actually learned it from Joyce from Pekafund. I think we both know well. The three lenses are first, you can think of fundraising and have a sequential approach. So the Series A follows after the seed round. And after Series A, you get Series B, Series C and onwards. So that's a sequential approach. The second approach is the revenue threshold fault. 
I think that's pretty popular, but not always correct in my view. And that is, for instance, if you are you're in 1 million revenue per year, then you're in seat. If you're 1 to 4 million annual revenue, that's, let's say, Series A, 4 to 10 million Series B, and over 10 million, you get, let's say, into the C round. But that's uh, the second bucket. And the third perspective, which I like to join myself as well, is the maturity model, which basically looks how mature is the overall business. It's very hard to make this very tangible. That's why I don't think it's like widely adopted. But it generally says that a business who has, for instance, 500K in AR, but which is, for instance, product-led growth business with hundreds of customers, can have actually quite high maturity. So it qualifies for a Series A round of funding. Whereas some other businesses, which don't have any replicability, with, for instance, 2 million in annual revenue, it's maybe harder to even classify it as a Series A type of funding. Then, of course, in this approach, I have included, I would say, general B2C and B2B type of businesses. You know, that's very interesting. And unfortunately, we could cover a whole episode just on these three different views of the stage of a B2B SaaS company's evolution. But the market maturity model is really interesting because I never really thought about that, except when I do benchmarking, I want to put every company we benchmark into a cohort based upon things, including average contract value, distribution model, is it sales-led or product-led? So that maturity model do you see VCs really looking at different valuations and even revenue to enterprise value multiples based upon the maturity model context, Arthur? It's a very interesting point that you raise, whether you see it into valuations. I do think so in a way, but to explain the point, let's say you have a 2 million AR type of business and they grow, let's say, over 100%. They show interesting, all, all the metrics, they're operating in a large market, etc. However, for instance, their sales model is not so replicable. It feels a bit more like they got some deals out of luck. In such cases, like top VCs, which might be less interested in investing in the company already at this point, but might be more inclined to, to wait a bit before doing their Series A or potentially even the Series B round of funding. And, and this has, of course, immediately the implication the deal gets less hot and therefore the multiple potentially gets lower. And I think that is the effect from maturity level on the revenue multiple. But in general, I would say the business I just described, everyone would say like, hey, we raised a series A fund. We raised a series A round of funding. But in order to qualify for really top investment firms, you might have to show different things for the series A. And, and that's how I look at it. Yeah, you just stimulated a thought. I'm going to do some new benchmarking research on a maturity model, and I'll definitely want to bring you back to talk about that once we have the findings. But let's jump into the book, Leaders of Growth. So you had some amazing leaders of growth that you interviewed, like Mark Roberge, your first CRO at HubSpot. You had other people like Max Chappelle, who's got a great go-to-market kind of model, Kate Christensen, of course, one of my dear friends, Nathan Lotka, right? But was there <laughs> anything about the book that you found from all these interviews that kind of jumped out at you and even surprised you, Arthur? It's a super interesting question, Ray. And now there are immediately at least 100 things popping up in my head. So I just tried to structure it, but forgive me if I go all over the place. But the most important thing I'd like to mention is the authenticity 
of these people who contributed. And I was personally quite curious how people would, would interact with me because I, I'm a guy from the Netherlands or from Europe interviewing everyone like across the world. And some of people eh, are very senior, but the informal conversations I've had and the openness I got into the conversation on challenges that they faced and how they dealt with it, that was personally for me, the biggest thing I value. And maybe for something I took away from myself is that it is always important eh, if you want to get to a point is to stay true to yourself and be authentic. So that was the first comment. Then a few more content-related points, which I think are very interesting is from an investor point of view, I usually have a top-down perspective on the business. But from the operators I spoke to, they have, I would say, a bit more of a bottom-up perspective to scaling a business. And I think that was a very interesting view to see. Let me double click on that one real quick, because I think we all who have been involved in VC backed startups, we see different orientations from the investor and board of directors to the operators, even the CEO, but especially the CEOs go to market leaders and development engineering leaders. Can you talk a little bit more about when you say a bottoms up, is that it's more of a tactical orientation versus strategic? Or what do you mean by more of a bottoms up orientation? Yeah, sure thing. I'm going to be a bit black and white here, but if an investor would, for instance, look much more like, okay, how is your MR growth doing? Is the LTV CAC, the lifetime value to acquisition cost ratio, is that healthy? Are you operating in a large market? Have you attracted the right type of people? That's sort of how they look to a business. And that's also how they generally evaluate the business and being black and white here. But from the operator point of view and how they look at the business, they're much more looking into things that are really important to drive the business. Like, for instance, how do I motivate the right people? How do I build the right culture in order you know, to ensure that people perform really well? Or how do I share a strong vision that resonates with the broader audience? And I would also say investors and these type of people are usually really looking into frameworks and conceptual thinking. Whereas from an operator point of view, I got sometimes a bit more of a pragmatic approach. More like we're at this point, we have to get from A to B, and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, and, and both, I think, are really valuable, but that was nice to see that that difference. Yeah, that's a real interesting lens on the topic because, of course, you see those different orientations, but kind of to put it into more of the conceptual theory base versus the more pragmatic hands on the ground. Totally agree. And I see that even with benchmarks, which is what we do for a living. I've actually been in and talked to CEOs who've been in board meetings. They're like, well, your cap payback period should be X or your net dollar retention should be Y. And it's without the context of that company's specific attributes, such as their average contract value or their target market or their product type. So I'm with you on that. I want to kind of go to another topic though, and that is from all of these interviews, were there some common challenges that you saw in scaling a B2B startup? And I'm going to follow up to that with, were there some common challenges at each stage? But overall, what were some of the biggest common challenges you identified? Yeah, again, like super interesting question. And I would say I identified a few common teams just to bring some structure here for the audience. Of course, there are a zillion type of challenges that you can come across when you scale across series A to C and, and beyond. And you can first look eh, like to the external perspective. Eh? You look, for instance, to the market size and the competition. But that is not so much where I like to focus. I think also those are generally known. Where I like to focus more is the internal perspective. 
So more look to have from an organizational perspective, what are some challenges in order to get from A to B or from B to C or beyond? And I identified, I would say, six big challenges. So just to introduce them shortly, the first is really understanding what is the departmental objective. So what is the objective from, for instance, HR within a 20 FTE type of business compared to a 100 FTE type of business? That is different. And knowing, knowing the objective also makes you focus on the right things at the right time. And I think focus, of course, key. Then the second thing is the data challenge. For instance, what type of metrics do you measure at what point? How complex do you go? But also what is really important for your as a North Star in your business? Just to make that a bit more tangible real quick, pre-series A, retention is much more important than, for instance, your lifetime value to acquisition cost ratio. And the third challenge, which we might get a bit deeper on later on, is the HR challenge. I think this was the most commonly mentioned challenge, which I think everyone recognizes. Few challenges which are in this bucket are related to getting the right people at the right stage, but also being fine that some of the early joiners leave after some point because they don't recognize themselves anymore in the company because it has grown and become a bit more formal. Communication procedures, which really start to change once you get to a certain size. So that is in that bucket. The fourth bucket is related to documentation and enablement. So here I can maybe give a great example of Joao Grasa, what he shared. Uh, he's a CTO and co-founder of Unbubble. And what he did, they created in the code like a dummy variable. And then one and a half years later, it wasn't documented that this was just a dummy variable and it was basically nothing wrong with it. It wasn't linked to anything, but nobody dared to touch it because they didn't understand the context of it. And that's where he said, like, hey, documenting your journey is really important because otherwise stuff can start breaking or people start avoiding things. Then the, the fifth aspect is the processes challenge. And this is something I learned from Alex, from SaaS Talk, where he really said, like, if you go from 20 to 30 people and then you want to grow, if you don't have processes, things really start to break and you have to start systematizing the business and need sort of like an operational framework in order to run your business. So that's something, uh, there is, of course, much more beneath that, but that's, that's a bucket. And the sixth bucket I've identified is really related to tooling. And that is, I can tell a lot about it, but just to give one example, you start with Excel, at some point you adopt HubSpot, but at some point that's not working anymore and you need Salesforce. It's really interesting. I am, I'm trained as an engineer. My first management development training was from a very large multinational company, GE, which was famous for their leadership development back then. And a lot of these things that you mentioned, the process challenges, the importance of documentation, the tooling and infrastructure, so you can have the metrics that you can make decisions from, the HR challenges. A lot of things that I was trained in a billion dollar company, you're saying are similar for a 5 million, 10 million or 20 million ARR company, right? 100%. That's totally the case. Well, interesting. So often we see some lagging indicators of challenges that earlier stage BB SaaS companies are facing. Like you mentioned some things like retention rates are going down or your committed ARR growth rates are not at 60% anymore, they're at 38%. So those are lagging indicators that you can now say, oh, shoot, what do I do? What's the root cause? Do you have a framework or anything that you could provide to early stage SaaS companies that say, hey, at this stage or based upon these symptoms, here's the three to four top priority things you need to quickly evaluate. 
The complexity in, in the question is I've developed a framework on how to look towards scaling. What makes it very challenging is to be super concrete is, uh, for instance, to say like with HR, you have to do X, Y, Z once you get to, let's say, 30 people. Is that there are is that every business is unique in a way? Uh, for instance, like the customer segment that you target, uh, like enterprise or SME, makes a big difference. In, for instance, on the processes level that you need for like a sales department. The same, of course, applies to many other things, and that makes it hard to make like a super concrete framework. But I can definitely lay out like the generic concepts that I got from the authors of the book. Yeah, would you mind doing that now? Yeah, sure thing. So how we started thinking about scaling are like a few things. I think generally it's perceived that scaling is something that's happening after product market fit. And then it's perceived as sort of a one-dimensional thing, or at least that's what I've seen in conversations I had with people. What I now believe much more is that you have to look to it on a continuum basis. So there is not one stage that you have to scale, but you have to look much more to maturity type of models. So in general, if a company now is scaling, and for instance, say you take like uh, the sales department as an example, I think there are uh, roughly five stages for a maturity model. The first is like ad hoc, you just do things. Then you get into a stage of like initial processes. Let's say you start working with Excel and uh, everyone documents something in the Google Sheets. Then you move into the replicability stage. From there, you go to a predictable stage. And then you do things at scale. And it's things at scale is still a very large category, but at least that's aligns well with the Series C type of companies. So that is the first thing I think you have to identify that there are different maturity stages. And the second thing is that you then have to plot, have to envision how does my company look like in 18 to 24 months for, for instance, a sales department or your HR department. How do these maturity levels look like in these coming months? And then do that on the dimensions of the six challenges that we just described. So to make it a bit more concrete, how does my HR department in nine months, for instance, that should be in the in the replicability stage, and the data I have to measure is, for instance, number of applicants, and in terms of processes I have to set up is like a proper onboarding process with this and this tool. And that is how you write it down, like in a, in a framework for yourself. And then you start really thinking like, okay, what do I already have? And where do I have to grow towards? And then the gap analysis basically provides you a good insight on where you have to prepare for. That is roughly how we now look to scaling. You know, I really love that framework because I get brought in by companies to do these key performance indicator and metric assessments. And one of the first things we do is we ensure we have a KPI framework that aligns the company level performance metrics they're looking to provide to future investors. So if you're a series A, what are series B investors looking at? So we establish what the company benchmarks are for a series B company of your size, of your ACV value. And then we get the each department, whether that's marketing or sales or product or HR, to have departmental key performance indicators that have a causal relationship to those company level. But the biggest thing is, and it's what you said, don't look backwards and say, well, look how great I've done over the last quarter, two quarters, four quarters. Look at what are your cohort in the future, that series B cohort, what are investors looking for in those benchmarks and put in the internal processes, measurements, and organizational disciplines of a Series B company versus continuing to act like a Series A company. Does that resonate with you, Arthur? 
Yeah, 100%. I think that's a brilliant summary. And the importance is exactly what you say. You have to prepare, you have to know in time, where am I going? Because lots of things just take time to develop. For instance, with the benchmarks, if you go to Series B and there was a whole, and people ask for lots of metrics and you haven't measured them in the past, then of course you can't show them. And that can actually really limit you from going from Series B to Series C. And I think the same really applies with preparing your organization for scaling. Yeah, I can't believe we've already went almost 30 minutes and I could talk to you for hours, Arthur, but let's have one last question about writing the book before we wrap up here for our listening audience. And that is, right, we're there as you talk to these leaders of growth, many are multiple time founders or at least multiple time growth executives. Did you see a lot of kind of pattern recognition where they would bring out, hey, I've seen this same exact thing happen two or three times so they can almost predict what's going to happen in the future? Or did you find it was still more of an individual, each situation is very different and I can't really give you pattern recognition at similar stages of every company I've been in? I'm quiet for a bit <laughs> because it's a, it's a very multidimensional question and I would say there are patterns. I do believe that, for instance, uh, your distribution model, for instance, PLG or sales-led or marketing-led, as well as your customer focus, like being, being enterprise or SME, if you box that, I definitely think there are lots of similarities to identify. But what I would roughly see, what I got from the audience, is that in a Series A type of business, it's really about replicability and building initial strong leadership that that is very key and laying all the foundational processes. And that from Series B, it's really about predictability and you do things at scale from what you did at the Series A. And I would say at that point, it's really important to have established your, your senior team. All your tools have to be, the basics have to be in place. And you also become much more structured and, and documented. And from that stage onwards, from Series C onwards, you move really into like a larger organization. And there you really see like the silos coming in and then metric setting becomes more important to align teams. So for instance, Bill McKay mentioned like a very strong point on, uh, he was the old hero of Slack and Zendesk and he, he brought up the point for from shared metrics. And I really came to see that the larger the organization gets and the more different teams you have, the more important it becomes to align the team as a whole and to still ensure that the organization as a whole is productive. So, so that were like a few things that, that I've identified along the way. Yeah, it's interesting. I have this mantra for Series A companies, I talk about repeatability, get your initial repeatability proven. Series B, I talk about predictability, using metrics and data to predict what's going to happen in the future based on what happened last month or last quarter. And three is scalability. And that's Series C. So it's interesting that this little simple framework that I use is very aligned to the framework that you're developing from this book. So it's a good thing that there does seem to be some standard patterns in the startup ecosystem around the world. Definitely. No, I, I definitely believe and that's also why we've written the book. Though every situation is different. There are so many things people can learn from people who have done it before. And the playbook of building a next, the next unicorn, I think, is uh, getting written better formalized every day. Well, Arthur, one of the things you said early in the podcast was how authentic every leader of growth that you interviewed was and how willing they are to share. So one of the things I'd like to share with our listening audience is I found one of the most important things to do as a founder CEO is identify mentors and advisors 
who have specific experience to your stage of company. You may get a great advisor for that kind of C to series A, all about product market fit, et cetera. But when you hit 25, 50 million and you're all about scalability, you might need to bring more advisors or new advisors into your network who have that experience. Do you see that as a common challenge for a lot of founder CEOs where they don't continue to build their mentors and advisors as they and their company grow? I do think this is a big challenge and also one of the reasons why we've written the book. Because for if you look to the Silicon Valley ecosystem, I think it's, it's very strong and you have lots of companies who have gone through that stages. Well, but if you look more like in Europe uh, and you exclude, for instance, Berlin and London, there are not so many companies who have gone through their journey. And I do feel that for founders at their stage, especially if they, for instance, not have gotten investments from the very large American funds, it's relatively, you're still in the mode of, of figuring it out to some extent, or you get advice from really great people, but who have not been in your exact uh, stage, and therefore it's still a, a discovery. So I fully agree with you. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up, but the good news is this gives our listening audience a chance to get to know Arthur just a little bit more on a personal basis, and I'll do three quick questions. So first of all, with all this research and entrepreneurs you meet with, is there a CEO or company that you think is a must-follow in 2021? I do think that from the audience of this book, I'm still uh, impressed by, for instance, Felix Eichler. He is working for Userlane. He is now five years old, so already Forbes 30 and the 30, and he started the company at the age of 20. And I think if you get to the point where he is today, I think I find that, for instance, impressive, and I think the company will uh, still grow a lot. So that is one of the persons I, I would pick. Okay, so that's Felix Eichler. And I believe if people get a chance to read your book, it's on page 27. Is that right? I believe it's page 27. Second question, is there a tool that you think every B2B SaaS company should be using to help scale their business? Of course, I have a bit of a growth hacking background, so I really like this question. My two go-to tools, which I recommend everyone, are Phantom Buster and LinkFusion. What does it do? It helps with LinkedIn automation. I think if you nowadays want to do account-based marketing or want to just build up your network, I think these tools are detrimental for that. Okay, let me see if I got that right. LinkFusion and Phantom Buster? Correct. Okay. And lastly, um, and I just had a daughter who graduated her university. And of course, she doesn't want to hear my advice. So I ask every one of my guests on the Metrics of Major podcast for what advice would you give to a recent college graduate or very early career professional who wants to be a great B2B SaaS founder someday? What's your advice, Arthur? Uh, First of all, congrats with this uh, great accomplishment. I think there are three things I would like to look at it. First is be a self-thought person. So read a lot every single day, look at your agenda, because then you will be amazed on where you will be in, in a couple of years. The second thing, for any job that you choose, it's very hard and nowadays, because there are so many options, but optimize for four things. Exposure in a job. Second, people you can learn from. Third, company growth. And fourth thing, intrinsic motivation. You always have to be excited about what you do. And the, the third level of advice is really that she has to determine in the road to becoming like a SaaS entrepreneur and gaining skills. Does she want to get functional expertise, like for instance, sales or marketing, or does she like to be a bit more generalistic and have conceptual thinking skills? 
these things determine uh, if you would like to get functional skills, I would say go for a high profile series B type of company uh, in B2B SaaS where you can learn a lot from others. If you go up more for the second option, conceptual thinking skills, for instance, McKinsey investment banking or VC or PE might be very smart routes to go to. But last of all, I really hope that she chooses her own path, which probably will be unique, but hopefully also very fulfilling. Now, Arthur, that's great advice. And here's what's really interesting, talking about pattern recognition. So about six months ago, I hosted what I think is one of the great SaaS VC investors here in North America, Byron Dita from Bessemer Ventures. And when I asked him this question, he said, be a lifelong student of your industry and your passion. And you said the same exact thing, be a thoughtful person, read a lot. So it's interesting that the advice from venture capitalists around the world seems to be pretty consistent to our listening audience. Be thoughtful, be a lifelong learner, and do something that you love. Hey, Arthur, thank you so much for being a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Best of luck with your book, Leaders of Growth. By the way, when is that being published? It's going to be published on the 30th of June, coming Wednesday. Okay, on June 30th. And where can our listening audience find your book? Is it on Amazon? There are two options. One is on, on Amazon, indeed. The second option, find it hard to find it, go to leadersofgrowth.co. And there you uh, find the relevant link as well. Okay, well, there you have it. Arthur Noble, principal at Knight Capital in the Netherlands, author of the Leaders of Growth book. And for our listening audience, if you're enjoying the content and guests we have on the Metrics of Major Up podcast, it would mean the world to us if you would go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast network and provide us a like and a recommendation of how we can make our show even better. Arthur, thank you so much for being our guest today. It was a pleasure, Ray. It was really nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.